everyone and welcome to another Stoanova Conversations. Uh, my name is Massimo Pilucci. I'm a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York and I am joined by our co-host Rob Coulter, also a professor of philosophy at the University of Wyoming. Hi Rob, how are you? I'm Massimo, very good. Looking forward to today's discussion. Yes, this is going to be interesting. Before we get to that one, I'd like to announce the next episode of the Stoanova Conversations. That will take place on Sunday, June the 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And we will talk with Nancy Sherman about uh, Seneca, Stoicism in, and Stoicism in the Military, and her new book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. So I'm looking forward to that one as well. If you want to register for that event, go to meetup.com and look for the Stoanova. If you wish to watch past episodes of the Stoanova Conversations, go to YouTube and look for the Fixing Winter YouTube channel, and uh, you'll find all our videos there. Today, we're we have the pleasure of uh, talking with um, Anthony Long. Uh, we'll have an interesting conversation about all things Stoic. Uh, let me just remind you, just in case you, do, you, you don't know, uh, Anthony is Chancellor's Professor Emeritus of Classics and Irving Stone Professor of Literature Emeritus, as well as Affiliated Professor of Philosophy and Rhetoric at the University of California, Berkeley. He was educated at Manchester Grammar School and University College, London, where he took a first-class honors degree in classics and was subsequently awarded a PhD. Tony then held lecture positions in classics at the University of Otago in New Zealand, the University of Nottingham, and the University of College London, where in 71 he was promoted to the position of reader. Later on, Tony moved to the University of Liverpool to take up the post of Gladstone Professor of Greek, a position he held until assuming the position of Professor of Classics at the University of California. In his retirement, he continues to be active as a professor of the graduate school, teaching courses in classics and philosophy, while pursuing his program of lectures, conferences, visiting appointments, ongoing research, and talking to people like Rob Me. Tony has been elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, corresponding fellow of the British Academy, and a member of the American Philosophical Society in 2009. He was awarded an honorary doctor of philosophy degree by the University of Crete in 15. He has written a number of books, among, among those I'd like to note in particular, The Hellenistic Philosophers, uh, out from Cambridge Press, Epictetus, A Stoic and Socratic Guide to Life, Clarendon Press, and How to Be Free, An Ancient Guide to the Stoic Life, uh, Epictetus and Caridion, and Selections from the Discourses by Princeton University. Tony, welcome so much to the Stonova Conversations. Thank you so very much. It's a very, very good pleasure to see you, Massimo, Rob, and, and other friends uh, in this, uh, you know, time when we've certainly I've greatly missed conversations and uh, looking forward to this. Good. Rob, you want to take it away? Yeah. So again, thanks so much, Tony, for joining us. Um, I've been going back over some of your recent um, events and there's an idea I really thought it'd be great to just start of put out on the table that you've argued for, for example, in your talk at the 2018 Stoicon, where you uh, suggested that beauty and goodness are logically equivalent. <laughs> and I, I find that idea really fascinating and, and uh, illuminating. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about it a little bit and then maybe say something about how that might uh, affect modern Stoics. Thank you very much, Rob. It's, uh, it's I think, uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, if we think about ancient notions of beauty, you know, starting with probably the the Pythagoreans and going into Plato and beyond, you know, it's very much um, 
a notion of balance and symmetry. Uh, the most beautiful thing is the thing that sort of has no, you know, rough edges. So very different from a lot of modern art. <laughs> uh, but I think it fits the Stoic idea that there's something, as it were, four square about the, um, you know, the ideal Stoic person that uh, you've got all, all, all sort of systems are, are on go. Uh, and, um, and Zeno, the original Zeno, of course, whom we know terribly little about. Uh, you know, in a, in a secure biographical sense. But what he was most famous for in Athens, you know, in his, in his own lifetime, and what he was commemorated for in decrees and inscriptions was this untranslatable word, sophrosune, this Greek word which is often translated you know, a bit weakly as, as moderation or self-control. It really, it really means sort of secure, sound thinking, and coming back to the idea of beauty, I think this the people people were impressed by Zeno because he just seemed so. He had it all together. It was it was all totally balanced. And um, again, that might not seem a terribly exciting uh, notion in like a sort of modern media terms, but I think in in a fairly histrionic and sort of highly emotional Greek culture, it's, it was it was rather surprising. You weren't expected to be balanced. And and the beauty of of the Stoic, I think, is 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 shown in that in that way. The Stoic is somehow he's ready for anything, or she's ready for any situation, uh, and that um, that readiness um, has has a kind of glamour, almost a sort of sheen. I think I think I think that's what I would like to say. And it seems to me that that that, that what I was trying to say in the Stoic con con conference was I think that's a bit missing in some of the modern Stoic notion. Stoicism, although it's, it's, I think it's shed its sort of awful traditional grim picture, but it's still seen much more as a, as a problem-solving kind of uh, philosophy than one which is absolutely positive and looking out, out at the world. Again, something horribly missing, I think, in the, in the heading of the Hayes article, which suggested that Stoicism is really introverted. I think it's the opposite. I think Stoicism is, is a highly positive philosophy. Uh, if you take, for instance, the you know the, the, the most famous beginning of Epictetus's manual about the things that are up to us and the things that are not, uh, well, it can be read, of course, in a somewhat restrictive way. There's all, all, all this stuff out there that we can't perhaps influence. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is it's it's enormous focus on on what we can do on agency, and so agency. I I, de I don't particularly like translating it as in our power. That's the Roman translation. Uh, it suggests something a little bit, or, or even control. I think those are two. It's it's up to us. It's it's that there's a you out there, and nobody else can do what you can do, and there's always going to be a role for you. I think that's 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 the beauty outside it too. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's really helpful. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Tony, I have a different, although you, you kind of give me a different question, although you kind of gave me a, a segue into it. Um, you spent a lot of time, uh, you know, studying my favorite ancient Stoic, Epictetus. And in your book, How to Be Free, An Ancient Guide to the Stoic Life, 
You present uh, Epictetus' vision of freedom, which is very different from what most people today would take, uh, uh, you know, would mean by that word. So can you talk about how Epictetus in particular and the Stoics, because it, the similar thoughts I think recur also in Seneca, uh, think about, about freedom? Yes, yes, thank you, uh, thank you Massimo. It, it is obviously not what we typically think of, you know, in the, in the sense of freedom, either in the political sense, uh, freedom uh, just to go about your business without anybody uh, doing anything you know, to, to interfere with you, um, um, a kind of external freedom. That, that, but it, so it's it, it, the easiest way perhaps to approach it is it, it's a notion of inner freedom where the inner refers to your state of mind that you're not being trapped or uh, inhibited by anything uh, that you don't actually want. So this is, this is the, the, the paradoxical notion. I mean, it, it goes back to Socrates, because I, I think one way to always look at Epictetus and uh, the founding sort of principles of Stoicism is to think of, uh, think of Stoicism as a kind of ecumenical or cosmopolitan Socraticisms. Socrates was not an, a cosmopolitan. He was a, a, he was very much an Athenian. Never left the city, and although you can you can apply Socratic ideas in any context, uh, it, it's still part of what makes Socrates the person he was. I think is is very much that 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 small civic identity. Whereas Stoicism it extends that the, the the basic principles of Socrates that. No, nothing. Nothing is really uh, harmful to a human being, which they don't, you know, which they, which which is, is done to them by others against their will. That 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 is taken up, I think, in the Epictetan sense of freedom. Um, that all of us uh, are bombarded all the time by thoughts and impressions outside the world, you know, which which have have immediate effects on us. Uh, it's it's hot. It's cold. Uh, it's, it's scary. And, and, and Epictetus, like everybody else, thinks that we all have these ex ex experiences, but we never need to act on uh, first impressions of things. We, every time we experience something, there's a way, a way, two, two sides to it. There's the affect. Um, um, I'm, I'm feeling I'm slightly embarrassed or something like that. And there's how, how you respond to that. And so the freedom aspect is that uh, allowing the mind to have a certain space in which um, it can, as it were, um, take take command. I don't want to say take command of itself, so that there's a side of you which is um, un. I don't want to say it's insulated from outside. Oh, sorry, I've gone. I don't. It hasn't. Have I lost things? Okay. <laughs> no, you're good. Okay. Right. Uh, it, so, so it's inner freedom of, um, uh, in the sense of um, not being, uh, not being um, uh, constrained, not being. I mean, not being constrained by circumstances beyond beyond the. Beyond the the sense that you, you can't opt out of what you're experiencing. Uh, so, if, if there's a fire, you're going to be hot. Uh, if, if there's a, 
an earthquake, you're going to flinch. Those things will happen to any anybody. Uh, but there's an, an, the stoic um, idea is to enlarge. I think this is, again, perhaps going back to something I said before, I think it's meant to enlarge the scope of your agency by, by trying to show that there's an area which of thoughts and, and, um, and judgments that is always, on, always and only yours. I think that's, so it's, 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 it's carving out a kind of space for autonomy. That, that's, that's, I think, perhaps I can say. Rob, you had a follow, follow up on this one? Yeah, I wondered on the topic of freedom. Of course, you uh, edited and wrote the in introduction to the late, late Michael Freda's yes. uh, work of free will. Yes. And he had an idea there that I'm going to try to paraphrase if I remember it right. And you can, of course, correct me. Um, the idea the, of freedom as not being hindered or constrained by that which is sort of not um, not in the nature of the sort of things we are, right. right? That idea, and I wonder if that connects, if we could connect that sort of explicitly to what you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, I think what uh, what Michael wanted to bring out in that book was the contrast, actually, a, a development in Epictetus beyond what he saw as the Stoic Chrysippian uh, view of of agency. Um, um, there's the, the famous d debate about uh, what is walking. <laughs> it sounds a little bit sort of esoteric. Chrysippus and Cleanthes had a debate about what walking is, and uh, Chrysippus said it's the it's the mind that's the or the hegemonicon, the controlling part of one's body, uh, it, it going into your legs. And so you, when you walk, you're, you're, you've, you've extended your hegemonicon down into your into your limbs like that. I think what Michael wanted to say is that actually um, walking for the Stoics is an, is an intention. Uh, you might actually be struck by paralysis. The very moment you've decided to take a walk, you might, you know, God forbid, be struck by paralysis. But that will not affect the fact that you formed the intention, if you were perhaps a good Stoic, the wise intention to take a walk. And you could therefore be held responsible for that, uh, blamed or praised for it, uh, and 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 so that the again it, it sounds as if this is restricting the scope of agency simply simply to the mind, and and in one sense that is true, because obviously it is equally true that the this awful event could happen to you, or any anything else external could happen to you. Um, so stoicism, I think, first time in in. Um, in, in certainly great in ancient history, and uh, 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 I suppose that you might find a, an echo of it in, in Kant, but it's putting all the weight uh, of 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 uh, human uh, agency on judgment and intention, um, and so uh, so I think that 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 was something that Michael wanted to bring out in in, in that book. Tony, I have a follow-up on this along the same lines. Although in the meantime, let me remind you to adjust occasionally your your screen so that we can actually see you better. Yes, thank you. So the, the next follow-up question, which I think it's very closely related to what we've been uh, 
talking about is you know another aspect of freedom for the Stoics, and again in particular for Epictetus and, and Seneca, is the what is sometimes referred to as the the open door policy. That is the notion that if you really can't take things. Uh, you can always walk mm -hmm. out of here. Uh, you can commit suicide, basically. So do you want to expand a little bit about how the Stoics saw uh, the possibility? So my understanding is that they saw the possibility of suicide as the ultimate uh, you know, uh, source of freedom, because, again, if, if you really cannot do anything else, you don't, you, you're, you know, you're not in a position to virtues anymore, you're not in a position to do anything uh, good, then you can always get out and fit. Seneca literally says that your freedom is as far from you as your wrists, uh, meaning you can slit them. Uh, but at the same time, they're also fairly, it seems to me at least, they're also fairly conservative in what counts for good reasons to walk through the open door. I mean, it's not just like, well, whatever, I'm tired, I'm going to go, that's it, right? I think it's, again, it's an echo. I mean, it starts off as an echo of the very famous passage in, uh, in the Phaedo, in Plato's Phaedo, where um, when Socrates is um, you know, facing his own de uh, death sentence, um, uh, ma makes the point that one is not entitled to uh, take one's own life uh, until the captain calls. <laughs> right. So, th th so this, this idea there uh, that uh, only under there would have to be something like a, in the case of uh, Stoic, perhaps not. He wouldn't put it, but your your mind would have to be absolutely convinced that there was no good reason to continue living. Now, I think there's something very important which I think is misunderstood about Stoicism here. When when Cicero talks about about this. He says that the, the, the basis for uh, this, this notion of the, what they call the rational way out would have to be that your, your external circumstances were so grim. I mean, there would, you know, you'd be facing starvation, uh, uh, torture perhaps. Uh, in other words, the idea that the Stoic is indifferent to external circumstances or unconditionally indifferent to them is quite wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, the Stoic is extremely concerned with external circumstances because the Stoic could not be benevolent unless there were goods out, out there that need to be distributed. <laughs> and uh, it's another point I tried to make in the Stoicon paper that Stoicism can actually be thought of as a, an extremely activist sort of political stance in which you, you want to you know maximize opportunities of, of, uh, of, of a good life for everybody. Of course, you may not succeed, but that's what you tr should be trying to do. So the, the, act, the, 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 the idea of, the, of, 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 Seneca, uh, sorry, of, of suicide, I think it's a doctrine um, which would only be uh, justifiable in, ex in, in extreme circumstances, um, I, I suppose, I mean, Seneca's example so, one, one, is Cato. Right. Um, and and not, not, not perhaps the easiest example for us today. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to relate to that sort of extreme yeah. example. <laughs> uh, the popularity of Cato as a, as a, as a, as a model is, is always uh, um, uh, uh, amused me. But of course, the fashions <laughs> change. He, he was very, I mean, in the 18th century, I mean, uh, there, was a, there, was, there were plays on Cato. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, but but um, 
so, so I think that stoicism has had a, a bit of a bad press on, on this idea that, you know, sort of you just, you know, you just take a pill or something like that when things go bad. But no, I think it's meant to be an extreme, extreme um, uh, instance uh, of, of of the Stoics' freedom. I think that's, that's again, it's, it comes back to um, that question about freedom, doesn't it? Because if, if, if in extremis, then even your mind would, would, um, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to take command of your of yourself. Right, right. that's right. Yeah, what one of the things you said um, a minute ago strikes me as important uh, to be uh, clarified not only for people who you know never heard of stoicism, but even for for people who actually study and practice practice stoicism. That, that there is this notion that uh, virtue requires an environment in which you operate. Uh, it is other uh, directed, right? You you can't just be virtuous thinking virtuous thoughts on your own uh, right, and right. that's it so it's it's a, obviously so when people say oh it's uh, stoicism is a is a very self uh, you know self-oriented philosophy well not exactly it's self-oriented in the sense that yeah it is up to me to decide to do the right thing but doing the right thing obviously involves other people it's not i can't do exactly. just the right thing for myself right <laughs> um rob you want to sorry go ahead tony no, just it just made me it, one of the things I did find very objectionable about the Hayes article, uh, mm. where en, where he ends it by saying, "Unhappy, perhaps the society that produces Stoics." Right. Because in the context we're just talking about, with, uh, with on, on freedom and Epictetus, and you know, and, and trying to promote uh, the general good. Um, Stoicism elevates. It, 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 Epictetus tries to elevate. Not only human agency, but human dignity. I think it puts an enormous. He says, "You know, you're a children of God." Well, that's we we can translate that into a different idiom, but he but to try that to say that you're children of God is to say that there's something extraordinarily special about being human, and this is not meant to be self congratulation. It's meant to put enormous responsibility on us if we are given the same potential sort of faculties that the creator of the universe has in his own di different mode, and then this, I think, is perhaps the most important thing for um, modern Stoics to get, to get across to people, that they have resources, they have potential resources when they, you know, when they feel at a loss and when they feel the world is, you know, unfair to them. Well, of course, it very often is. But that's the resources are to uh, um, cap, to sort of activate this side of one's nature, which perhaps has been latent and and isn't perhaps you know encouraged by our our modern media. Uh, Robert, you're gonna you have a question next. Before you go on, uh, let me remind people in the audience that uh, we can take questions, and the two ways you can ask a question is that you put it in the chat. And then either Rob or I will read it out loud, or you can raise your virtual hand and uh, we'll see you. And, and at some point, uh, there'll be a break and, and we'll call on you. So, uh, Rob, yes, what do you Yeah, do you want I, just wanted, I just wanted to... Uh, so you, you talked about this children of God idea, right? And it's clear yeah. enough. It's clear enough that the ancient Stoics and, and maybe Epictetus in particular talked a lot about God and the divinity of the universe and providence and ideas like that. Um, 
But this raises what I think is maybe one of the most vexed questions for modern Stoics, right? Is, and I guess maybe I'd break it up into two different questions. I'd love to hear your response to. Uh, one is, does one have to buy into the idea with Epictetus um, and and the other ancients that uh, of a divine providential universe to be an uppercase Stoic? And relatedly, and maybe these are maybe you want to give the same answer to both these sorts of questions. Um, is there a way to understand the idea of a divine providential universe in which we live that's compatible with a modern stoic, uh, modern scientific outlook that a lot of modern stoics want want to bring to it? Yeah, this is obviously a big uh, a big question, uh, Bob. Um, I've, I've discussed it a lot with. Uh, Kai, um, Kai, can't think of his Kai Whitting, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's been very interested in this. And, and, uh, and it's come up a bit, I think, in contexts of um, environmentalism and ecology. I think it's somewhat easier to accept um, uh, Stoic pantheism, but certainly not sort of, you know, Judaic monotheism, pantheism. It, 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 you know, when we've come to see the interdependence of life forms and how much... Uh, mm how much, uh, you know, we, we've been, we've been de de degrading our own environment. Um, and, uh, you know, just to sort of start off perhaps in a kind of slightly naive way about thinking, well, what, what a wonderful world this is that we live in, potentially, until we, mm -hmm. until we mess it up. Um, and that and even, even if you're not any kind of deist, let alone theist, uh, there's, there's still the wonder, the wonder of nature. Uh, uh, and I mean, I think if one can't appreciate that, then there's going to be a lot in stoicism that will, one will not be responsive to, even though you don't have to accept the, the, uh, the providential aspect. Um, now, I do think that the, the providential and the deterministic aspects of stoicism, those two, those two axioms, that the world, the world could not be different from what it is, and it's the best of all possible worlds. Putting those two together is essential, I think, to grasp some of the Stoic paradoxes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, you know, that it just couldn't be the case that even though you're facing an almost appalling situation, this is somehow the, the way it had to be for you. Um, and of course, it is the case that many people, I mean, think of Myanmar and other places, many people are facing all the time appalling situations. And so what do we have to say to them? Does, can, the stoic, can the Stoic say anything at all to them? And, and I was thinking about that yesterday, you know, before the conversation. You know, suppose I was faced with, uh, ex well, execution for a crime I know I didn't commit or having to see my child tortured. I mean, it, it, these are real things that happen to people. Uh, is there nothing then you can say to them? What, well, what is the alternative? Is, is the alternative to... To scream, to, to growl, um, or is it that I think to recognize that even in such a situation, you're still in a social context, mm. and what you do, what you do may make a difference, even in extremis, how you respond to a, a terrible situation. So, um, so I'm slightly moved away from, from the God point question, um, <laughs> but I, I, I think that although we don't want the the monotheistic kind of divinity um, for us as Stoics or would-be Stoics to recognize that the world is a, 
is a wonderfully, potential wonderfully place, which we need to rever- reverence, I think. I think reverence is the word that I'm looking for here. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that may be something modern Stoics might want to recognize a little more. It's very important, I think, in Epictetus and in Seneca, this idea, not it's not so much a theological idea, but an idea of, of of wonder and respect for and that you can extend that all over the place and and in fact some modern scientists have essentially uh, espoused that kind of idea i'm thinking of so-called einstein's god when when uh, which is basically spinoza's god i mean when he was asked you know do you believe in god and he said yeah i believe in the laws of nature and uh, you know their beauty and all that Uh, i can think of carl sagan for instance uh expressing similar similar thoughts in terms of the awe uh, that we 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 should have we should yes. feel about the universe right yes you remember this that the wonderful uh, epictetus essay where he starts off in in a sort of somewhat you know theistic mode about you know god has made the sun when it rise day, day by day but then he sort of moves into the person and says you know you're carrying god around in you uh, and your own daimo and, right. you, and, and you don't realize that and then he says, and so when you close your door and make the room dark, you're never alone. Mm-hmm. And that, right. I, think, I find that an amazing thought. Yeah. Uh, yeah. An Epicurean couldn't possibly say that. <laughs> uh, That's right. <laughs> that somehow you're in a community, even in, even in prison. And right. I know, Rob, uh, you, you've lectured, I think, in prison, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. And, and I have, too, also in San Quentin. And I found it, I mean, the experience extraordinarily um, uh, moving. I mean, I, I took the risk of, uh, of actually sort of starting off by saying, well, according to Epictetus, no one is in prison except by their own free will. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> I, I thought, am I going to get out of here? <laughs> and what moved me immensely, and I had a group of about 25 men, um, was that nobody seemed to have any felt sorry for themselves. Nobody said I've been badly done to. They, they seemed to take responsibility for where they were and were very, in, they seemed challenged by Epictetus. Hmm. Do you have this experience? Yeah, quite. Uh, they, yeah. And, and uh, one of my favorite bits is, is, um, yeah, they seem quite ready to take responsibility for what they've done and to exercise the freedom they can within that context. Yes. Um, yeah, it's quite clear to yeah. me. Tony, we're going to start reading some of the questions uh, from the audience because there's a good number. I'm going to go first, and then um, uh, maybe Rob can pick another one that he uh, particularly finds intriguing. Uh, the, the, one, the first one uh, is from Keith. Uh, he says, uh, what is living according to nature? <laughs> and I think that's related to what we've just been talking about. What, what would be, yeah, how would you present, because w- whenever people ask me, you know, what, is, what does it mean to live according to nature? I say, well, one, mean, one thing it doesn't mean is to go uh, running naked into the forest and hug uh-huh. trees, although there is nothing wrong with that if you want to do it. <laughs> I think there, yeah, I think it's a very good question. And there are two there are two sides to it because there's there's the nature that is we talked a bit about the nature which is the um, the ecosystem the world I mean uh, 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 and there's your your nature as a human being and um, and of course you know one one very simple way to try to express the Stoic ideal is that somehow you achieve harmony between these two these two and you act according to nature 
when you use your own resources, your own uh, rationality and uh, uh, and character in a, in a way that is appropriate to your surroundings. So that, that that's 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 one way I think one can answer that question. I'd like to ask a, uh, Gabriel raised a question in the chat that, that I'd like to know what you have to say about it too. Um, are we to assume that Cicero is accurately representing Stoicism in his works? And um, thus should we give be giving him perhaps maybe a little more respect among the Roman Stoics? I, I do think so, Rob. I mean, I think I, I, I will, I, that's a point I did want to, to make if I had the opportunity um, the first book of, um, of Cicero's work on duties, um, it's not perhaps to modern taste, you know, just uh, it, it, maybe we need a new translation of it. It's perhaps more of an adaptation than a literal translation. But I think it, it contains so many nuggets of, of Stoic ethics, especially to do with notions of, uh, of natural law, of sort of, of, of cosmic citizenship, the, the social side of Stoicism, which isn't to the fore in, uh, it, it, it gets a bit of it in Marcus Aurelius, uh, but it's not to the fore in Seneca and Epictetus, even though it's totally compatible with them. And I think that, that that's why this work of Cicero's was so enormously influential and popular in, in the Renaissance. Um, it was the first a classical book to be printed. Um, and, you know, it even had this nickname, Tully's Officers. <laughs> Tully being the, Tullius being the other part of Cicero's <laughs> name and officers being um, nothing, nothing to do with premises. I once said it sounds a bit like disused prisons premises today, but it has nothing to do with that. It's <laughs> just a, 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 a transliteration of the Greek word officium. So yes, I think we, I think, I think more, more, more attention to, to Cicero. And of course, if you want to get into Stoic theory, uh, you know, then other works of his uh, work on ends is very important. So my next question uh, that I actually, again, I'd like to hear uh, what you say about this because it's, it's interestingly put. Um, it's from Alexander. He says, uh, Seneca seems to say that events that one might interpret as bad on a bodily level are actually beneficial to the Stoic if understood as training opportunity for his or her virtue. So one could get the impression that events can be both dispreferred and preferred. Uh, is that a contradiction of some sort or, or there's some way to distinguish between levels? So in other words, if, uh, uh, you know, typically people say things like, well, uh, being poor, you know, losing money or getting sick, it's a dispreferred indifferent. But then Seneca is saying, yeah, but you can use that as a training ground for your virtue. So does that mean that I should prefer to, to be uh, you know, sick or losing money or something like that? It's, it's a, good, a good thing. After all. That's a very, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that is a very good question. I mean, I, I, I've generally thought that, you know, say a dispreferred, indifferent, say ill health or poverty is just, you know, is just always so. And in other words, uh, it would always be required of you as a Stoic to treat ill health as something to avoid in principle. Uh, it's never going to become good, as it were, or preferred. But, but Epictetus, I think, somewhere says, you know, sometimes we treat the bad as good and the good as bad. So that there has to be um, a, a judgmental aspect. And so I think your basic answer is that while, you know, if you had to jump into a river, let's say, to, uh, you know, to a surging torrent to try to save somebody, of course, that would be a, a dispreferred uh, action in, in some sense. 
but of course it would be the right thing to do as a as an act of generosity and courage um and so i think so there's always going to be a circumstantial aspect to these the, the these um the way we, we we the way we behave towards these indifference and you know remember how in in the earlier stoics when they different coming up with different formulations of the of the goal of life one of them is to to select the, these things with good reason and i think i'll diselect them so i think i think it's they're always there as guy as they're not they're not going to lose their negativity as such but they could become positive in our use of them of course right yeah rob what's your pick yeah 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 so i'm gonna uh, ask this question that terry has given us um so he says that wisdom is knowledge of matters human and divine in their causes. Yes. Seneca remarks that without this exploration, life wouldn't be worth living. Is this, um, does this give a per sense of purpose to human life? Um, well, yes, I mean, the knowledge of causes. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's, it's, it, I think it's a very important notion of stoicism. It's part of the, it comes within the package of sort of rationality of trying to understand why things have happened. Uh, I mean, COVID, COVID is is what we are all going through still, and how did it happen? Uh, I think it's very important for us not only to to try to understand why it happened, uh, what could have been done about it that was, that was done poorly. Uh, so you're going to have, there's always going to be a political social aspect to this notion of causation. But also just recognizing, you know, that life has its limits. Uh, some of us, if we're very lucky, we may, you know, like I have been, you may may live to a pretty good, pretty old age and with good health, but it's not going to go on forever. That's part. That's part of the causality. Uh, you know, to recognize that um, uh, nature itself will sometimes um, c come out with, you know, there'll be malformations in nature. Uh, so there's a, there's a sense in which <coughs> stoicism is. Is, seek, is seeking to help us to get real about about things through this notion of causation, um, and at the same time, I think it can have this positive aspect. I think you know, there's a great deal of uh, joy. So that's another, because very important stoic word, in, especially in Seneca, a great deal of joy to be obtained, you know, from from uh, from under, trying to understand things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, as a as a scientist, I can certainly uh, certify to that to that notion. There is a joy just because you, uh, you know, you, when you understand things. And in fact, it seems to me that uh, there is pretty good evidence that that joy that is brought about by understanding is actually ingrained in the in human brain. I mean, we literally get a flood of you know pleasure hormones once we figure out a puzzle. Yeah, <laughs> so. But the next question comes from uh, my friend and co-author Greg. And uh, he's, uh, he says, in chapter, chapter four of your book on Epictetus, uh, you lay out prerequisites for would-be Stoics. Like the ideas of beauty, this seems to be another big difference between ancient and modern Stoics. Can you speak to the differences between how Epictetus' students, who were you know, young men sometimes being groomed for, for Roman society, came to his school versus how people today all genders often seeking mental tranquility come to Stoicism. In other words, what are the differences in prerequisites between Epictetus students and the rest of us today? Interesting. Yeah, I think um, 
I think one question one might just want to put as a preliminary is I think that um, there's, there's probably a great deal of um, reluctance in American society to have um, teaching in school, which would be, um, you know, a, a sort of a requirement which might involve anything like um, uh, the philosophy of stoicism. I mean, I, parental yeah. control, I think, is something... <laughs> which right. is, many people hold very dear. But I think there is an, a, a, it has a negative side, which is that children are, are being taught skills, but they're not being taught, well, they're not being taught, the Stoics would say, how to live. Right. Um, and, of course, how one might introduce that in a way that is compatible with our values and freedoms and uh, non-interference and non-indoctrination is a huge question. But I, I, has, I have a suspicion that, you know, if we could look at our, ourselves two centuries down the road, I think things would, 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 will have changed or would, will need to change. Um, so I suppose, I mean, Hay, Hay makes a, p- a point, I think an unfortunate point, again, in his critique of, of Stoicism about the elitism of um, even, even of epic you know, in the sense of his students. Um, well, yeah, I, I think that yeah, I think that if, if we're talking about about two modern students, um, my impression just from teaching, you know, where of course you have um, all, all, all types of people and genders, um, no problem. I mean, I, I haven't ever, I haven't ever felt a student was uncomfortable with the fact that the language is tends to be put into a male kind of context um and and and, and but that's not entirely true uh epictetus um uh expresses great admiration although also some uh, horror of, of of the character of medea he sees her as a a noble character gone wrong um, and so there is much too little from our point of view about uh, wim- about women uh, in, in, in in our stoic sources, but the same, of course, would be true of um, all, all ancient all ancient literature. And so, if you're going to criticise stoicism for that, uh, so I think that students um, have have had no difficulty with this, as far as I'm concerned. Um, um, I think it's very interesting to imagine, try to imagine. Epictetus's students, late teenagers and, and early 20s. I mean, they're getting some pretty grown-up teaching. Yeah. And, of course, they're going to try to, they're going to be sent off into the military. Uh, they're going to be sent off as provincial cler- uh, st- uh, governors eventually. And um, so it's, 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 it's meant to be for grown-ups, even though the, the kids are, are, are young. There's no coddling. There's no right. coddling right. there. Right. Um, uh, and um, uh, I have a friend, uh, uh, Berkeley, um, Jim Porter, who's been writing some interesting things about Stoicism, somewhat he's critical of what he calls the, the, the coziness of, of the Stoic, of modern Stoicism. I'm not sure that's <laughs> a correct way to put it, but he, he even calls it as a kind of fuzzy, a cozy, kind of fuzzy, warm side. To, I don't quite find that myself. A bit more like a, a cold bath. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's all relative. I mean, it depends on which position you come from. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. <laughs> so, Rob, you want to pick uh, something I else? I answered yeah. your question very well, Rob. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think well, I think so. yeah. So let's try. Um, love to get your take here on this question that Nicholas has raised for us, right? And this is a, a, a rather ancient question, right? So, given the Stoicism, uh, uh, sorry, given the determinism of the Stoics, and so on, uh, how would you formulate for a modern audience, perhaps? Uh, a stoic response to the lazy argument, namely that if everything is just determined for us, why should I bother doing anything? It's just going to happen anyway. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Because the yeah, that that's a very good question, of course, and it was a a, a real conundrum for the for, for the uh, stoic determinists. They they had a, a, a strategy, as you know, of of trying to to deal with it. Um, if they giving given the slightly grim example of, uh, of, of Oedipus's father, King Laius. Mm. Laius goes um, uh, to, to an oracle, and, um, and the oracle pre predicts that he will, he will kill his own son. Um, and that, of course, will come true, because that's the, that's the nature of the story. But, but what the Stoics said, he can't do that without forming an intention. You, you, it, it doesn't simply begetting a son is not something that just happens to him. He has to do something. So they called it con these things con fatalia. There are two. There's a kind of co-determination between the external uh, circumstance and your own decision. Um, and it's interesting that you might think Epictetus ought to take this on board. And I, I've never, I haven't found anywhere in Epictetus mm. where he actually takes up the question of determinism. I think he is a determinist, probably. Mm -hmm. But then there's a, going to be an, a big question of then it does his his notion of, you know, the dichotomy of control. Is, is, is that going to be imperiled in some way? Mm -hmm. I suppose the, the big criticism one could make here of, um, uh, of Epictetus, perhaps, is that, I mean, in a kind of post-Freudian world, you know, we, we often feel nowadays that we know ourselves perhaps less well than others know us. <laughs> and so the notion of the mind's transparency, I think that, you know, and I mean, people like Descartes accepted that, but I think that a post-Freudians are going to find it a bit harder for that. So the idea that I can always take control of my thoughts, well, I mean, that still may not be true. I mean, I when I was ending my little book on, not, not the little book, but the bigger book on Epictetus. I, I, I said, you know, that I, I sort of raised a question of whether Epictetus's nostrums are really universally applicable. They they may work for some, but not necessarily for all. Mm. Well, one one way to think about that um, is I, I always understood the Stoics to be essentially what modern philosophers would call compatibilists about yes. about yes. free will, right? And so I, I go back. You're right. Uh, Epictetus is a little bit more difficult to read in that in that area. But I go back to to the Chrysippus example of the cylinder uh, mm -hmm. that you know rolled, right? And so. When, the, when Chrysippus makes this distinction between the internal causes and the external causes, so it's the nudge as an external cause that pushes the cylinder to roll, but it, the cylinder rolls because it is a cylinder, because it's in the nature of cylinders to roll. Otherwise, if it were a cube, it wouldn't roll or something like that. Right? So I take that to, to mean that our uh, prohiresis, our faculty of judgment or whatever it is, is simply one of the core causes of the universe that goes through us. Yes. And so that it is inaccurate to say 
as let's say some modern writers like Sam Harris uh, uh, often put it, uh, oh, that we are puppets in the, that are, whose strings are moved by the, the rest of the universe. No, no, we are part of the universe. We're not moved by the rest of it. It's the movement goes through us. And so, you know, whatever it is, ours is that bit that goes through us and of which we are aware we make decisions. I, I, yeah, I, I, that, that, of course, is very good. And I mean, what you said, and, and, and Cicero giving us that information to, describes the prohiresis, the, um, the internal cause as the principle, the principal one. I think this is actually something very important for, I think, our modern sociologists ought to be a bit challenged here. It, it, there's a tendency to explain everything today in the outer world in terms of social movements. Right. And whereas, of course, social movements are abstractions and it's people who make decisions yep. and, and they may make them in a collective way. I mean, they may make them by raising hands, but each one is an individual. And so I think that this comes back to something I stressed at the beginning. I think the, the most important notion perhaps in, of all in in this application of stoicism to life is this notion of agency and, right. you, and your responsibility and that you actually do do something you're not you're not a cog you're exactly. you're, you're you're in a social system but you still have you know and leave leave freud out of it <laughs> but you still you still have at least the impression that you can make decisions i just wanted to follow up on that just a touch if i could tony it seems to me that one of the mistakes potentially at least that that people who um have so much trouble with with this idea <clears throat> is that we think of ourselves as agents but yet somehow at the same time outside the system of causality that is the rest of the universe right. mm -hmm. it's so the so i guess a diagnosis i would say is that we find stoic determinism so difficult to understand because we don't see that we are integral to the you know chain of cause and effect as yes. as they would put it yeah I, I, I yes and I think that um, I think that's right and I think that the the ecological you know problems that we're facing uh, ought to make us more aware of that interconnection mm. it does seem to be basic to life forms biological life forms that they are that they're part of a system yeah. and, um, and we, we, we we you know, we don't want to think of ourselves perhaps quite like that, but um, but but we are we are we are caused and 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 uh, and, and and what we do has has consequences. Yep. We have a few more minutes. I, I'm going to read at least one more question uh, by Mark. How does the concept of ataraxia, so you know, tranquility, fit into stoicism in a different way than it does for into Epicureanism? Is it less important for the Stoics than the Epicureans, or is there some other way in which the two schools look at ataraxia? Um, yes, I think that there are. They, they, they are, although both schools um, do make uh, uh, ataraxia uh, an important um, uh, ideal. It, 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 it is really the um, the goal of Epicureanism. I think it's um, it's a mistake probably to say that the the goal of Epicureanism is um, is pleasure. It's actually um, it is tranquility um, mm -hmm. and freedom from pain, uh, and so all, and so the, the whole philosophy is built around around that. 
whereas in stoicism, it doesn't come in, I think, at the beginning. It's not, as it were, part of the kind of axiomatic structure of stoic ethics. It's rather a consequence of, of, of the ethical um, uh, pr uh, principles. I mean, so, in other words, if you supposedly um, build your, your life around the notion that the only ultimate goods are, are, are the virtues, and the only ultimate bads are, are faults, and, and everything else at some level is, 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 in, is inessential to your well-being, um, then the tranquility is, is, is going to be, I think, a, a consequence of not putting your, your, all your eggs on, on the idea of fortune. I mean, so, right. yeah, so it's coming, going to come in at that point. Uh, I mean, when Epictetus sets, you know, sets it out in the first of the, of the manual, uh, if, if you only accept, you know, this dichotomy of control, then you'll never be, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never, you'll never be impeded. Um, but so it's, it's, but it's consequential there. It's not the starting point of stoicism to right. be tranquil. Yeah, yeah. So, Tony, you, you mentioned a couple of times already in passing uh, the uh, Gregory A's uh, article in the, so just yes. to give some context uh, to, to our uh, viewers, this is an article that came out a few weeks ago in the New York Review of Books by Gregory Hayes, who is a translator of, uh, you know, one of the major editions of uh, Marcus Aurelius's Meditation. And uh, he reviews a number of books, or at least the excuse for the review is, is, the, is for the article is reviewing a number of books that have come out lately about Stoicism, although he actually mentions very few uh, in, any, in any depth. Uh, and he goes on on what uh, increasingly, when I started reading it, looked like a surprising a neg surprisingly negative take on Stoicism and surprising from somebody who is a classic scholar and, and, and a translator of Marcus Aurelius. Um, what's, your, what's your take on, on, on that? Um, and yeah, I, I was surprised by it. I mean, I think the, the initial comments he makes, some of them, you know, are, 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 uh, are on, uh, have, a, have a target. I think when he says that there is a danger of um, uh, people in thinking that uh, um, it, you know, we should just accept certain situations which are really structural, you know, and so, so trying try to, to simply say, well, we ha you know, you know have, to, have to go along with them. Uh, it, I think he's trying to say that stoicism, modern stoicism is failing to inspire sort of social and political change, something like that. Right. But, but then I think he makes a lot of very weak points and I think what I'd just like to say in our, in our time here is, Stoicism, of course, has always been subject to criticism. Uh, it was criticized in antiquity for being too austere and severe, for being paradoxical. It was criticized in the Renaissance and, uh, and early Enlightenment for pride. That was the Stoic, that was especially in a kind of Christian context, and, and, and attacking the Stoic notion that you know, the wise man could be a, uh, sort of the equal of God in his own character. Um, so there've always been these criticisms. Um, what I just wanted to say in response to Hayes, he, he seems to be terribly unhistorical. And one thing he's failed to understand, I think, is the enormous value that people have attached to Stoicism at, at different times. I just came across a very interesting example of this, a book I was asked to comment on, 
uh, is dealing with the the use of stoicism in in 16th century French song, hmm. and uh, and there are some wonderful. I, I can't find perhaps an example here, but I just wrote it down because here's what one of these songwriters said. Um, we want to furnish airs that will be as popular as possible in order that children of all kinds can learn them uh, as, as, a, as a moral foundation. Yeah. And the, the, these songs are uh, in little, little, little four-line songs, uh, basically, you know, pick, sort of picking up uh, key points of stoicism, uh, you know, not to be afraid, not, not to want the, the impossible, but that these should have become popular at this time. It seems to be just, again, a sign of, of how adaptable stoicism is. Mm. So, yeah. it, And I think that's, again, a point we need to rec- recognize. What I like about the modern stoic movement very much is it's sort of, it is eclectic, and I think it has to be eclectic. You know, there are things in stoicism that um, are unacceptable, I think, for us. Uh, but there's so much else that uh, you know we can can make use of. So that was the weakness of 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 um, of, uh, of Hayes, I thought, and I just didn't quite I, I didn't understand what was driving his his um, complaint. Yeah, yeah, I don't understand the motivation either. And you know, he, 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 maybe he's the one that can tell us at some point. But um, but one of the things that struck me precisely along the lines of what you just said. Is uh, you know one one of my favorite quotes from Seneca is where he says in the, in the letters that uh, the people that preceded us are not our masters they're just our teachers, and mm-hmm. if we find something you know some better way of doing things it is of course incumbent on us to to do it that way and so you're right uh, stoicism has been flexible and uh, and and the dynamic philosophy since the beginning I mean you know yeah. uh, Diogenes Laertius tells us of Chrysippus disagreeing with Zeno and Cleantes disagreeing with Chrysippus you know from the from the get go that these people tried to do their best after all it is a philosophy therefore it's a human creation of course it's not uh, you know it's not supposed to be fixed in stones uh, we have a few more minutes Robert has the last question I believe yeah so speaking of uh, you know our, our our predecessors being our teachers you mentioned <laughs> a couple times earlier um, you mentioned the figure of Socrates and ways in which Socrates differed from the more cosmopolitan Stoics, yeah. but it's also remarkable, I think, uh, you know, that it, that it seems that Socrates is the most cited uh, philosopher in all of Epictetus, um, yes. right? So I, I was wondering if you could maybe say something about how Stoicism, maybe Epictetus in particular, are Socratic in an important way. What legacy of Socrates do they bring to us? Yeah, uh, that's well. That, yes, that's a, a very big question, Rob, and because what I really, you know, was a very important part of the uh, what I was trying to say in in my book on Epictetus. Um, I tried to show there that quite a number of the um, uh, Socrates strategies um, in you know, but his electric practice, you know, his practice of trying to show how an argument goes wrong. Uh, and his challenges, um, you know, such as that uh, no harm can come to the good man in life or in death. How, how these are absolutely cardinal to to Epictetus. So, um, uh, well, so I think Epictetus is drawing. He, he's not. He's not interested in Plato. He's not interested in anything like Plato's theory of forms. 
he's interested in both in the life of Socrates, you know, and the and you know, how 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 he behaved and and in his trial, um, how he dealt with supposedly his um, his uh, rather uh, ill-tempered wife, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, 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 but also but but at a quite a technical level, uh, I tried to show that. Um, some of there are there are arguments in Epictetus, um, much more so than in than in Seneca or in Marcus Aurelius. There, there are real arguments, and the notion Socratic notion that um, knowledge is 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 elusive um, and um, uh, something that we we need to start off from recognizing our own ignorance. Uh, the, the, uh, these are a number of these things are built built into. Uh, Epictetus's uh, procedure. So, uh, and, and I, I mean, I think that there are aspects in Epictetus which um, uh, are, are, are purely, purely stoic. I think the notion of progress is a very important stoic notion we haven't talked about, but could do. Uh, it, it, that's very, very important in Epictetus. Uh, he hardly ever talks about virtue. He hardly never talks about the sage. Uh, I think thinking because for his young students, these are these are probably you know, not 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 the most um, uh, attractive or con- conducive to to their to their progress. I mean, the idea that um, what we are always trying to do is get to we never get there, but we're always striving. I think that that that's that's something wonderful. And you know, we live in a society which puts so much uh, emphasis on success, um, and the idea that effort and intention perhaps are. Uh, even more important is uh, is a great stoic uh, um, thought for us. I think. Great times. Great, thank you, um, uh, Tony. We are now definitely out of time. Thank you, uh, Tony. Has been a pleasure having you. I mean, thanks so much for uh, spending an, an hour with us. Uh, this See you again soon. Very informative. So, um, Rob, as usual, it was fun seeing you. And, yep, great uh, seeing you, Massimo, and, and thanks again so much, Tony. Uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you. So before we close, uh, let me just remind people that the next episode of the Stornova Conversations will take place on Sunday, June 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We will talk with Nancy Sherman about Seneca, Stoicism in the Military, and her new book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for, Mod- for Modern Resilience. If you want to register for that, go to meetup.com and look for the Stornova. And until then, stay safe. Bye-bye.